Good morning, SNWTUL New Orleans News and Views. This week, protests across the country have called for justice in Sandra Bland's case. Here in New York, at least a dozen people were arrested Wednesday after sitting down and locking arms in the street. They also raised questions about the death of Kendra Chapman, an 18-year-old African-American found dead in her jail cell in Alabama just one day after Sandra Bland was found dead. Chapman was arrested July 14th on accusations of stealing a cell phone. She was found unresponsive in her cell 80 minutes after she was booked. Just like in Bland's case, authorities have claimed she hanged herself, but her family does not believe it. At the protest in New York, demonstrators also mourned India Clark, a 25-year-old African-American transgender woman who was found beaten to death Tuesday in Tampa, Florida. These are some of the voices from the protest. I'm a second year in college. I go to the new school. I actually came out because I was informed by one of my friends that this was happening. And all the time, this is actually my first protest. It doesn't seem like it's a very well-known topic since, like, things like Eric Garner and everything, like, everybody knew about that, but not many people knew about this. So I felt like it was my duty to, like, spread the word about what had happened. So it felt more urgent to me. Say her name means that... She's not forgotten, that her spirit lives on, and that her presence is here, um, and that she has a voice, and that her lives matter. And because her life matters, all of our lives matter. I am Kalisa Moore of People's Power Assemblies. My organization um, put this demonstration on today because we, um, we really just want answers, um, answers to questions we, we already know, what happened to um, Sandra Bland, what happened to Kendra Chapman, what happened to Kayam Livingston, what happened to Ayanna Stanley-Jones. Um, we all, we know that, you know, we live in a country of white supremacy that is continuing to kill black and brown people, both men, women, and children. And basically, we organize this because we are fed up and we're no longer taking it anymore. My name's Kimberly. I've been with PPA for a couple of months. Well, I've been coming out anyway since the fall for Mike Brown, and a few months ago, there was a rally for Rakia Boyd, and you probably heard only about 25 people showed up for that. Um, so ever since then, I felt like it was very important whenever something happens to a black woman to also show up, just because it's disheartening to see that we don't get the same numbers, really, as we do when a man is killed. So I wanted to come out in honor of her and, you know, just respect her life. I just feel like it's our responsibility as black women to mention it, because if we're not even mentioning it, no one else is going to know. The lives of Sandra Bland, India Clark, Renisha McBride, Ayanna Stanley-Jones, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Kajimi Powell, Paul, John Crawford, and so many others will be the focus of a major movement for Black Lives convening in Cleveland this weekend. People from around the world are expected to attend. For more, we go directly to Cleveland, where we're joined by the three founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, Patrice Cullors, is the director of Truth and Reinvestment at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights in Oakland, California, founder of the Dignity and Power Now, a grassroots organization in Los Angeles fighting for the dignity and power of incarcerated people and their families. Alicia Garza, is Special Projects Director for the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and Opal Tometi is Executive Director of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! Um, Alicia, why don't you begin on the significance of what has taken place, what you're doing this weekend, and the death of Sandra Bland? You know, this weekend, over a thousand people are coming together to commemorate the lives of those of our family members who've been taken way too soon from us 
by police terrorism and state violence. And also, we're coming together to build a vision for the kind of world that we want to see. We want to see a world where black lives matter in order for us to get to a world where all of our humanity is respected. And Alicia Garcia, Garza, could you take us back to when you uh, coined the term Black Lives Matter and then link it again to what's happened in Sandra Bland's case? Sure, of course. I mean, when Black Lives Matter was started, it was a very similar moment to this, where uh, Trayvon Martin had been murdered by George Zimmerman, and George Zimmerman was acquitted in that murder. So while George Zimmerman got to go home to his family, Trayvon Martin's family will always have an empty seat at the dinner table. And we decided to design Black Lives Matter as an opportunity for black folks to come together, to love on each other, to celebrate our resilience in the face of such adversity, but also to come together to organize and to build our social, political, and economic power to change our conditions. And what's happening here with Sandra Bland is no different. Sandy Bland was driving, minding her own business, and that traffic stop ended her life. And we all have questions about what happened in that jail cell. We have questions about why was she pulled over in the first place. But the larger questions at stake is why do black lives have such little value in our society that they can be taken at whim with no answers, no accountability, and no justice? Um, Patrice Cullors, if you could talk about—well, the allegation is that she hung herself, that Sandy committed suicide, that she had expressed that she had attempted suicide in the past. They didn't put her in a suicide watch, if, if this is all true. Uh, you deal with issues like these of people who are in prison. Yes. I don't believe uh, Sandy committed suicide. And unfortunately, this issue of uh, people found hanging in their cells is very common inside U.S. jails and prisons. Um, on, for one, oftentimes, guards are killing people inside U.S. jails and prisons, and then they're hanging them to cover up um, the death and the murder. And then secondly, for those folks who actually do commit suicide, it's often because they aren't being cared for in the hands of sheriffs and the hands of prison guards. And so we have this um, crisis inside U.S. jails and prisons where people are left and they're vulnerable and they don't have a camera like we do on the streets and they don't have um, a hashtag like we do with folks who are dying on the streets at the hands of law enforcement. And so I think this case with Sandy Bland is really, really important for us to take a look at the U.S. incarceration system and the impacts it has on black lives. Uh, Patrice Cullors, you've also worked in s specifically on county jails, and Sandra Bland uh, was died, was found dead in a county jail. Could you talk about what the specific uh, context and situation is in county jails as against other uh, uh, prisons in the U.S.? Yes. I mean, the county jail is where you go uh, while you're awaiting trial, uh, before you meet a judge. The county jail is where you go— um, to uh, really uh, go through the process of um, whether you're going to be prosecuted or not. And so what we've seen, though, across the country as a trend uh, where people are ending up in county jails and being um, completely ne neglected, there's severe medical neglect in county jails, there's a significant amount of beatings that happen in county jails. And so you've seen this um, in Los Angeles County, you've seen this in New York, 
You've seen this in Chicago and now in uh, Waller County. This isn't um, this isn't new, unfortunate, unfortunately. And Sandy uh, was a victim, a victim of state violence. Opal Tometi, um, you are involved in immigration issues, uh, as well um, as the whole issue of uh, the way authorities treat people of color. You are the daughter of two Nigerian immigrants, executive director of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. Can you talk about the intersection of um, immigration and um, how people are treated of different hues in this country? Yes. So, the reality is that criminalization of people of color is impacting us, whether you're a citizen of the United States or you're not. And what we're seeing right now is the mass criminalization that is leaving low-income people of color, um, immigrant communities, whether you have legal permanent resident status, whether you're undocumented, and it's leaving them particularly vulnerable um, to the whims of local law enforcement and Immigration and Customs Enforcement. What we're seeing now is the deputizing of local law enforcement officials, so police, um, sheriffs, and so on, given the authority to act as though they are ICE agents. And so this leads to all sorts of mishandling of um, cases of folks who might um, be in or out of status in this country. And what we're seeing is that this collusion between Immigration and Customs Enforcement and local law enforcement is causing for rampant uh, immigration detention as well as deportation. So the, the vast numbers that we're seeing, the growing numbers, every day we're seeing thousands and thousands of people um, each week being deported. This is a result of the ways in which our immigration system and criminal justice system have now been intertwined. We're going to break and then come back to this discussion. Our guests are uh, Opal Tometi, uh, Alicia Garza, and Patrice Cullors, the three co-founders of Black Lives Matter. Stay with us. Barren strange fruit Blood on the leaves And blood at the roots Black bodies Winging in the southern breeze Strange fruit hanging From the poplar trees Pastoral scene of the gallant south. Nina Simone singing Strange Fruit about lynchings in the south. 
This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Our guests are the three founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, Patrice Cullors, Alicia Garza and Opal Tometi. As we turn right now to what happened last weekend, members of the Black Lives Movement staged a protest inside the Netroots Nation Conference in Phoenix by repeatedly interrupting Democratic presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders and former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley. This is one of our guests today, Patrice Cullors, interrupting Martin O'Malley's portion of the event. Let me be clear. Every single day, folks are dying. Not, not being able to take another breath. We are in a state of emergency. We are in a state of emergency. And if you don't feel that emergency, you are not human. Patrice Cullors, can you take it from there? Um, what you hope to accomplish um, uh, by addressing Governor O'Malley, as well as the group addressing Bernie Sanders and what's come of it? Yes. Um, the action was—yes, it was about the presidential candidates, but it was also about challenging white progressives. It was about challenging um, the notion that— uh, there's only uh, the lens of the economic justice agenda and really challenging folks to, to look at uh, the crisis in black America. Uh, folks were very emotional during that um, rally, as you could hear in my voice. Um, Sandra, Sandy had just been murdered. Uh, we were trying to figure out how we were going to um, hold space for her at Netroots Nation. We wanted to make sure that we uh, lifted up her name. And we wanted to make sure that um, folks didn't go on uh, as, uh, with business as usual. And so part of that push inside of the presidential forum was to spark a debate, uh, to spark a national debate amongst the candidates. Um, and, and Hillary uh, Clinton wasn't there, but it was to challenge her as well. To um, People are all often afraid to say Black Lives Matter. They're often afraid to use the word black. Um, and we are not. Uh, we are in this moment because it's absolutely necessary that we start to figure out a black agenda. Otherwise, um, we will continue to see the deaths of black folks at the hands of law enforcement, at the hands of the state. Um, otherwise, we'll continue to be in this crisis. Well, I want to go back to that gathering. After the interruption, Senator Sanders threatened to leave the stage. Black lives, of course, matter. And I've spent 50 years of my life fighting for civil rights and for dignity. But if you don't want me to be here, that's okay. No, sir, we want you to, no, we want you okay, to be here I, and address that and all the other questions. I don't no, want to outscreen people. Meanwhile, Governor Martin O'Malley responded to the interruption by saying, Black lives matter, white lives matter, all lives matter. Black lives matter, white lives matter, all lives matter. Black lives matter. White lives matter. All lives matter. Governor Martin O'Malley later issued an apology for the comment. Phrases. I meant no disrespect to to the point, which I understand, and uh, and th that Black Lives Matter is making. For many years, uh, many years ago, when I ran for mayor of Baltimore, majority African American city, when we had allowed ourselves to become the most violent, 
part of what part of what I called us to as a people was to the justice of realizing that yes, Black Lives Matter, and when we allow ourselves to assume that every year as a city, we just have to accept that 300 young black men will die violent deaths. That we have to do a checkup from the neck up and realize as a people that if 300 young, poor white men were dying, we would have a different reaction to this as a state and as a metro area and as a city. So I meant that was a mistake on my part. That was presidential candidate Martin O'Malley. So, Patrice, can you respond to how your uh, interruption was responded to? Yes, I think the interruptions, uh, the presidential candidates' responses uh, were important. Uh, what, what they did is they actually probably went back to their teams, <laughs> had a discussion about their responses, and um, uh, re regretted it. I think they both did pretty horribly on stage. Um, they both were unable to really listen to the needs of the Black Lives Matter protesters. I think they were defensive. And so um, since then, we've seen a, a number of them sort of release statements saying that Black Lives Matter. But at this point, um, we have to move beyond rhetoric. I think it's great that they're, use they're finally saying Black Lives Matter. But if there is no agenda, if there's no policies that are going to back that up, then what is, what is it worth? And your meeting that's taking place this weekend, uh, Opal Tometi. Yeah, in many ways, the meeting that we're having here in Cleveland, the Movement for Black Lives, is a gathering of hundreds and even over a thousand black young people, elders, and various people from different walks of life who are coming together, networking, um, sharing ideas building our, our knowledge base for what's going on and developing strategies to combat the pervasive uh, violence that we're experiencing at the hands of law enforcement, but also all across the board. So we're looking for a progressive, um, comprehensive racial justice agenda that really cuts across various issue areas. So, you know, for me, for example, I'm looking for candidates to deliver on a racial justice agenda that incorporates the needs of black immigrants from the Caribbean, from Africa, from different parts of Latin America, and so on. And so I think it's really important that we're having these gatherings, we're able to raise our voices, share the unique ways in which we are impacted by state violence, and articulate a new vision for black life in the United States of America and across the world. And Alicia Garza, um, the whole issue of the $15 an hour minimum wage—some people might be saying, why are you bringing that into this right now? But it seems the Black Lives Matter movement is the in intersection of all these different movements, whether we're talking immigration, whether we're talking about police brutality, or even the $15 minimum wage. Can you talk about how that relates? Yeah. I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement has to, by its very nature, be intersectional because of the complexities of who black people are in this country and throughout the world. There's nothing separate about wages from black life and the survival of black people than uh, police violence and police terrorism. We even still have a situation in this country where we have black workers uh, who are not covered by federal labor protections, like domestic workers and farm workers. So we certainly can't just look at the issues of police violence. Police violence is the tip of the iceberg when it relates to the conditions overall of black people across the globe. And so, as Opal mentioned, this weekend, 
people are coming together from across sectors, from across communities, from a, a wide range of walks of life to really try to both understand our complexities and understand how we use our complexities as a, as a way to leverage power. We're ultimately here to figure out how is it that we transform conditions in this country so that we can transform the conditions in our world. You are three powerful women. Did you ever think uh, the Black Lives Matter movement would take off in this way? I think that we are all deeply, deeply committed to the liberation of black people. And so when you put people together who have and share that commitment, um, the sky is the limit. And, you know, we operate with an incredible, incredible team that is networked throughout 26 chapters across the world. And this movement would not be possible. Uh, this kind of excitement and the generation of energy would not be possible without a brilliant, courageous, bold and innovative team of people. Well, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors and Opal Tometi, we want to thank you for being with us. We're going to continue the conversation after the show and post it online at democracynow.org. The three co-founders of Black Lives Matter. That does it for our broadcast. You can get a copy of today's show by going to democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced by Mike Burke, Renee Feltz, Steve Martinez, Sam Malkoff, Hani Massoud, Robbie Karen, Dina Guzder, Amy Littlefield. Special thanks to Laura Gattesdiner and Juan Carlos de Vila and Pedro Rodriguez. Mike DeFilippo and Miguel Naguera are engineers. Thanks to Elizabeth Press, Julie Crosby, Hugh Grant, David Crude, Best of the Dars. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Shape for another edition of Democracy Now! Papa loco, où se Poussez n'allez, nous c'est papillon à nouvelle baille Papa loco, où se
performing there was no different uh, the man was the world but in Haiti they did start earlier in this country before the United States 
I spent 65 years in the United States, and I bring my heart with me. And I said, time for me to go and help Haiti. Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, one expert, Emily Benfer, put it this way. About 10 million people over a period of years were displaced from their homes following the foreclosure crisis in 2008. We're looking at 20 to 28 million people facing eviction between now and September. People have to fight their evictions virtually since housing courts are closed. And if you don't have that fast internet or don't get on that Zoom call properly, well, that's failure to appear and you lose. The impact of eviction, meanwhile, can be devastating. Making folks homeless in a pandemic is just a flashpoint of this country's affordable housing crisis and a reminder that, as a new report begins, housing is health care. The report, called Out of Reach 2020, The High Cost of Housing, comes from the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. We'll talk with Coalition President Diane Yentel. Also on the show, an election plus a public health crisis equals voting by mail, which requires not just a functioning postal service, but a well-functioning one. A pandemic in which more people need critical medicines and supplies mailed to them calls for the same. But just as more is being asked of the U.S. Postal Service, decades-old efforts to cut the legs out from under it are gathering force once again. And they're being amplified and abetted by Trump's new Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy. Listeners may know about Trump's obsession with making the USPS raise prices, Seems he mainly wants costs to go up for his sworn enemy, in his mind anyway, Amazon's Jeff Bezos. But he's okay with the public, for whom the Postal Service is the most popular federal agency and the only one named in the Constitution, suffering the consequences. What and who is driving the push to privatize the post office, and how have they managed to shift the conversation? That's the topic of a new brief from Lisa Graves. She's executive director at True North Research and director also of the Coke Docs Project, which might be a bit of a tip-off. All of that's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Imagine losing your job in a pandemic and then losing your home because you can't pay the rent. That's the situation facing millions of Americans right now. As many as 28 million people, say some analysts, may be evicted from their homes in coming months, as what eviction moratoriums some places had enacted are slated to expire, even though there's no reason to believe people will suddenly be able to pay then. So is the plan to just allow millions of people to be made homeless during a public health crisis? Avoiding that specter involves taking up the underlying crisis, this country's lack of affordable housing. 
Diane Yentel is president and CEO of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. She joins us now by phone from Virginia. Welcome to Counterspin, Diane Yentel. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, in as much as there's been acknowledgement of what one would think is an obvious reality, that most people who've lost jobs at a certain point will no longer be able to make the rent. It's been these here and there moratoriums on eviction. And then we see some emergency rental assistance programs like New York Governor Cuomo just announced. Not to say that that's nothing, and I imagine there are better and worse programs, but was that ever going to be enough to turn back this crisis? No, it was never enough, and we've known that from the beginning. It has been a helpful start. Mm -hmm. So from the beginning, we have seen that if the federal government didn't intervene in a really significant and sustained way, that we would see a wave of evictions and a spike in homelessness. And so these limited federal eviction moratoriums and these state and local moratoriums that have been put in place have provided some protections for low-income renters and have helped prevent that wave from happening. But those moratoriums are rapidly expiring. As of today, there are 29 governors that have allowed their state eviction moratoriums to expire, and the limited federal eviction moratoriums expire next week. We have been tracking emergency rental assistance programs that have been created In response to COVID-19, as of now, there are about 151 emergency rental assistance programs around the country. Their main challenge is lack of resources. The demand for those emergency rental assistance programs far outstrip the resources that are available. Well, it seems to me that a moratorium without cash, I'm not sure I understand the thinking behind that. People aren't going to suddenly have four months of back rent ready when the when the moratorium ends, but also right. a cash assistance keeps the landlord paid. So I, I don't, I mean, giving people money just seems like the most direct and straightforward way to do this. Right. Well, I, we need both. Yeah. I mean, the, the eviction moratoriums assure people that they're not going to lose their homes right. in the middle of a pandemic. And that's the very least the federal government ought to do. So there shouldn't be a patchwork of state, local, and federal eviction moratoriums that protect only some renters. We need a uniform national eviction moratorium for non-payment of rent for the duration of the pandemic. But exactly, eviction moratoriums on their own aren't enough because they create a financial cliff for renters to fall off of when the moratoriums eventually are lifted and back rent is owed and the renters are no more able to pay the rent then than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. And that's why emergency rental assistance is so essential. It's essential to keeping low-income renters stably housed during and after the pandemic. And as you say, small landlords can't continue to maintain and operate their properties without rental income coming in. And so, you know, the last thing we want to do is end this crisis having saddled low-income people with more debt that they can't dig out from, or having lost some of our country's essential housing stock. And providing emergency rental assistance helps us avoid both of those harmful outcomes. Well, people about to be 
put out on the street, and I, I understand the moratoria are sometimes just on the execution of the order. Landlords were allowed to do all the paperwork, so the minute the moratorium ends, those people can be put out. But that's just the sharpest edge, maybe you could say, of what is really a huge problem in the United States. So let's talk about the coalition's annual out-of-reach report. What does that report diagnose, and what are the, the major findings from this latest one? Well, the finding from this report and from many reports that we put out that quantify the shortage of homes affordable for the lowest income people are that rents are far out of reach for low income people. They are tremendously out of reach for minimum wage workers, but also for the average renter who earns much less than what the average rent costs. And we also know that we have a severe shortage of homes affordable and available to the lowest income people in our country. So for every 10 of the lowest income renters, there are fewer than four apartments that are affordable and available to them. So because rents are so far out of reach for low income people and because we have such a shortage of homes affordable to them, we have nearly 8 million of the lowest income renter households, so about 25 million people in these households, who are paying at least half of their income towards their rent every month, and many are paying much more. They're paying 60, 70, 80 percent of their income just to keep a roof over their heads. And so when you have such limited income to begin with, and you're paying so much of it for your home, you're always one financial emergency away from missing rent and facing potentially eviction and, in worst cases, homelessness. So for many of these same renters, the coronavirus is that financial emergency. They're losing jobs. They're losing hours at work. They're losing wages. And it's harder than ever for them to cobble together what's needed to pay rent. Well, it's almost... Uh... Oh, yeah, of course, that Black and Latinx people are the most affected, but that shouldn't mean that we don't think about the particular reasons why that is. No, that's exactly right. People of color are most at risk. And to be clear, without immediate federal action, those millions of people who will be evicted from their homes in the coming months will be predominantly Black and Latino people. And you know, the current crises have heightened the threat of eviction for black and brown renters, but the threat is not new. Decades of racist housing policies from redlining and blockbusting, restrictive covenants, restrictive zoning, put homeownership out of reach, purposefully out of reach for people of color, and created this yawning wealth gap where today the average white household has 12 times the wealth of the average black household. And so this structural racism leaves people of color disproportionately low income, disproportionately rent burdened, and disproportionately likely to be homeless. So these inequities now compound the harm done by COVID-19. Black and Native American people bear the brunt of infections and fatalities, Latino and black people bear the brunt of historic job losses. And now their homes, and with it, their family's ability to stay safe and healthy, are at risk. 
Well, the Out at Reach report has a section on the systemic shortage of affordable housing, and I'm struck by the word systemic there. What what does that mean in this context? It's really a, a market failure. Oh, it is a market failure. That's exactly right. There's no way to build and maintain apartments that are affordable to extremely low-income people without government intervention. And that's because the rent that extremely low-income people can pay doesn't cover the costs of maintaining and operating apartments. So that's a market failure. And that is where there is an essential federal government role to step in and correct that failure and ensure that homes are affordable to the lowest income people. But unfortunately, for decades, the federal government has continuously underfunded solutions to keep the lowest income people affordably housed. And so we have a system in our country today where only one in every four households who needs housing assistance and is eligible for it receives any. So 75% of low-income families who are eligible for and need housing assistance don't get any. They are instead having to wait in long lines, adding their names to long waiting lists, hoping to win what's essentially a housing lottery Mm -hmm. in our system, where only the lucky 25% get the help that they need to be affordably housed. Well, it's immoral to allow millions to lose their homes because they've lost their job, maybe all the more so in a pandemic. But as with many things, if it's wrong now, isn't it always wrong? You know, it also seems societally stupid, you know. Um, It just doesn't make sense. And there are other visions, and this is a time for big ideas. So let me just ask you, what can we do? What can we be doing to make the changes we want to see? Well, you know, the solutions to the crisis are pretty simple, even if they're not easy. Like, you know, during a pandemic, let's make sure that we keep people who are experiencing homelessness safe and alive, and we get them as quickly as possible into housing, and we ensure that nobody else becomes homeless during a pandemic. And to do that, we need a national uniform moratorium on evictions for the duration of a pandemic, We need at least $100 billion in emergency rental assistance, and we need additional funds for homeless shelter and service providers to keep people experiencing homelessness safe and to get them quickly housed. And I should mention that each of those three solutions have been passed by the U.S. House of Representatives not once but twice, and there are multiple bills in the Senate to do the same. Now we need the Senate Republican majority to act on those solutions. But we can't stop there. This immediate housing crisis sits on top of a long-term systemic housing shortage. And those solutions, too, are pretty simple, if not easy. We need to build more apartments that are affordable to the lowest-income people through programs like the National Housing Trust Fund. We need to bridge the gap between what people earn and what rent costs through rental assistance. We need to provide emergency cash assistance to stabilize families through a financial emergency. And, of course, we have to preserve the affordable housing that exists in our country today. And, you know, allowing homelessness and housing poverty to exist in our country has always been a public policy choice. 
and we can instead choose to end it. The only thing that we lack and that we've always lacked is the political will to actually fund the solutions at the scale necessary. And maybe, maybe a moment like this helps us build that political will to actually make change. We've been speaking with Diane Yentel of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. You can find their work, including the new report, Out of Reach 2020, The High Cost of Housing, on the site nlihc.org. Diane Yentel, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. One Congress member said it would be a stunning act of sabotage if the new head of the U.S. Postal Service is allowed to push through major changes. Big Trump donor, surprise, Louis DeJoy issued a series of memos disclosed to the Washington Post calling for significant operational changes, including restrictions on overtime that many, including the Postal Workers Union, contend would slow down mail delivery. At the same time as Donald Trump holds up crucial pandemic support for USPS, contingent on it making steep price increases. Sabotage starts to sound like quite an apt description. But what we should know is that this direct attack on the Postal Service, while it may be felt especially acutely during a pandemic and an election in which the most reasonable response is voting by mail, is absolutely nothing new only the latest iteration of a decades-long assault on the U.S. Postal Service, featuring some characters and some ideas with which you might be unfortunately familiar. Lisa Graves is executive director and editor-in-chief at True North Research and author of the new brief, The Billionaire Behind Efforts to Kill the U.S. Postal Service. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Lisa Graves. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, it's like the slowest daylight robbery in history, this effort to privatize the U.S. Postal Service, something about a federal agency that serves everyone and doesn't make rich people a lot richer, just galls the heck out of some people. We can't cover every minute, of course, but take us through some of the history and the key players in this effort. Sure. What we discovered in our research was that Charles Koch, who's one of the richest billionaires in the world and who leads one of the biggest privately held corporations in the world, Koch Industries, has been staking efforts by people who have been working to privatize the Postal Service for more than five decades, basically. So we traced the early funding of Charles Koch of the Reason Magazine and Reason Foundation as it was working to popularize the term privatization and specifically target the Postal Service for privatization. Also, after Charles Koch became the biggest funder of the Libertarian Party, its platform included direct abolition of the Postal Service. Then in the 80s, his right-hand man went on a commission set up by Reagan that also called for the privatization of the Postal Service. His group then brought on board the Reagan administration official who was behind that, a guy named James Miller, who continued to push for postal privatization through the 90s. He was rewarded with a position on the Postal Board of Governors during the George W. Bush administration, pushed through in part by Susan Collins of Maine. And then he used his post as the chairman of that board to push through this effort in 2006 to saddle our Postal Service with extraordinary, unprecedented debt to pay future retiree health benefits 50 years into the future, 
And that debt has really been a huge obstacle for the Postal Service over these past several years and including its current books. And so you have a, a multi-decade campaign fueled by Koch men to privatize the most popular government agency, the one that serves more people than any other agency in our entire government. And now with the help of Trump and his political appointee, Lou DeJoy, trying to make the Postal Service less effective, we have a combination of forces that puts our Postal Service at grave risk. Well, I wanted to draw you out on on one part, the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act, because, you know, we often hear in the press that the problem is the Postal Service just can't compete, you know, with UPS and with FedEx. But that is part of the reason that folks call this a manufactured crisis. But it often appears, if it appears as kind of a an allegation of some critics or somehow it's not a minor, it's just a minor part of the story. Can you just talk a little bit more about that pre-funding requirement? Sure. This pre-funding requirement was imposed after other George W. Bush insiders looked at privatizing the Postal Service and felt that having potential future liabilities would be an obstacle to privatization. So the next thing that happened was that James Miller pushed through the Congress this effort to move that debt into a fund or that potential future debt into a fund. And what it did was take enormous sums that the Postal Service had in savings, put that into that account, and impose a nearly $5 billion payment each year for those future liabilities. It was really designed to make the Postal Service more attractive to privatization. And Susan Collins helped instrumentally with that, along with Mitch McConnell, who strongly supported James Miller's appointment to the Postal Board of Governors. And so you have the person who's now at the helm of the Senate who's in the position to do the right thing by the American people and by people in cities and small towns everywhere to save the Postal Service. Instead, you have someone who has worked behind the scenes to aid this effort to weaken our Postal Service. No private company and no government agency has any such requirement of that sort of future funding or to carry that liability on their books. And taking away those assets of the Postal Service deprives it of additional liquidity to help it to uh, modernize its fleet, for example, its postal trucks, to have them be more fuel efficient, to be modernized. And so you have a situation here where this Postal Service is the backbone in many ways of key parts of our economy, of the chains of distribution in our country, the processing of hundreds of millions of pieces of mail, things that cannot be substituted by email, people's prescriptions and checks and goods in this pandemic. These postal workers have been on the front lines as essential workers getting deliveries to neighbors everywhere in the country, and yet they're being attacked by the head of their own agency, trying to deprive them of the ability to deliver the mail on time as people expect. Corporate media often convey tacitly or explicitly the idea that whatever it is, the private sector does it better. And whatever it is, government should be assumed to be messing it up. You know, that's the kind of assumption atmosphere before you even get to the news. So perversely, those who want a public service to stay public are seen as inserting ideology. But who imagines that Charles Koch is putting all that energy into something that isn't supportive of the ideologies we see reflected in his investments elsewhere. And and part of that is not being a big fan of democracy, but it's also, and it's not often talked about, it's also not caring about the particular human beings who would be hurt 
by eliminating the U.S. Postal Service. And it's not just the, the folks who rely on it, but it's also the workers, right? That's right. The Postal Service employs more than 500,000 Americans. It's the second largest civilian employer in the United States. And unlike Walmart, which is the biggest employer, the Postal Service workers aren't subsidized with public assistance because of super ultra low wages like Walmart has paid its employees. Instead, you have a workforce that is very diverse. In some cities, a significant portion of the workers are African-Americans, like in Chicago. as a workforce that has 100,000 former veterans, military veterans uh, that make it up. It has tremendous track record. It is the most popular brand in America and the most trusted government agency. And yet, largely because one billionaire has had such singular focus on this extreme privatization agenda, he's been able to move that fringe idea from those fringes into almost domination within the Republican Party, unfortunately. And that's at odds with a longstanding history of bipartisan, transpartisan support for this vital public service that, in fact, the private sector can't do better, would gouge us for, would charge us so much more as we already see in the prices charged, in my opinion, by FedEx and UPS for other deliveries. And who aren't incentivized to go all the way out on those rural roads, you know, where the post office goes just because that's that's part of their job. Exactly. Exactly. And so many times Congress has spoken about the importance of the Postal Service as tying the nation together, making sure that every American, no matter how remotely they live, no matter how big the city is they live in, even in, through hurricanes like Katrina, through pandemics like this crisis, you have postal workers who have worked to deliver the mail, come rain or come shine, and make sure people's mail both gets to them and that their ballots, for example, get to clerks of court. So they're a vital function in our society. They should not be privatized. And this effort by Trump, by McConnell, by Snow and others to really move the postal service toward privatization is a fundamental rejection of this core institution that was actually named and created in our United States Constitution. Well, the American Postal Workers Union is fighting back. There's a worker-led coalition, U.S. Mail Not for Sale. What can folks do to be part of the pushback on this assault on the U.S. Postal Service? Well, I would really urge everybody to call every member of Congress, no matter their party, to demand that they protect the Postal Service, to demand that the Postal Service receive some funds as part of these COVID relief measures, that it receive some ability to have some loans, and that it be released from this debt obligation that is unprecedented. I also think, quite frankly, that they should be asking for the resignation of the Board of Governors that approved a to joy for this position, because we need someone in charge of the Postal Service that is devoted to preserving it and expanding it as a vital public service. And also, when they're calling and asking for support for the Postal Service, I'd ask them to repeal that 2006 Act, which also barred the Postal Service from having offering banking services or cafes or other uh, services that would help make it stronger and more flourishing and also is an undue cap on postal service activity that people may need and want. Well, we've been speaking with Lisa Graves of True North. They're online at truenorthresearch.org. And you can find the brief, The Billionaire Behind Efforts to Kill the U.S. Postal Service, on inthepublicinterest.org. Lisa Graves, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be on. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the Media Watch Group Fair, based in New York.
If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The website's also the place to get subscription information for FAIR's newsletter, Extra, to sign up for our Action Alert Network, or to show support for the show, if you're so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin.
Sit low.